Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning, everyone. If you are new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here, and I want to welcome you to Harvest. If you're just joining us uh, for the first time today, or you haven't been with us for a couple weeks, we've been working our way through a sermon series called Life on Life. And we've been looking at Paul's first letter to who he considered his spiritual son, Timothy. And uh, I want to talk about something called the discipline of celebration today. The discipline of celebration. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Here's what the text says. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. I want to start with a quick poll. And just show, by, by a show of hands, I want to get a sense of who I'm talking to here. If you had to choose permanently, I mean for the rest of your life, one or the other of these two options, which would you pick? Option one is to have a luxuriously appointed mansion filled and stocked with everything you need, but you could never leave that house for the rest of your life. But it's an awesome house. Everything you want is inside. Or option number two is a very modest dwelling, but you're free to go about the world as you please. How many of you pick option one? All right, how many would pick option two? Yeah, I I think there's no surprise there. A few weirdos picked option one. (laughs) Pastor Frank, I saw you. But I think the reason I would reasonably expect most people to pick option two is because there's something about freedom that is hardwired as a value in the human heart. That one of the things that scares us most is the idea of the loss of our freedom. I don't know if you've ever seen documentaries on Scandinavian prisons, but if you got to go to jail anywhere, get caught in Sweden, man. I'm telling you right now. It's like better than my house. It's, it's like a country club. Like You don't have to work, but you get to work out, watch TV, read books, study law, and the rooms are nicer than my college dorm was. But even in a place as nice as that, it's still prison. And I think the thing that would really get to me is that I'm not free to move about. And this text that we just read this morning, what Paul is saying is that in the last days, in the later days, which means really the period between the first coming of Jesus and his return, the days in which we're living now, he made a prediction in the Holy Spirit that a lot of people would abandon their faith and would take on what is actually, arguably, a whole different religion. It sounds like the vocabulary of Christianity, 
But the truth is, it's not just a variant of Christianity. It's a totally different religion altogether. And it's a version of the, the faith that is built around rules and restrictions and all the thou shalt nots. Now, there are a lot of prohibitions in legitimate Christianity. Don't get me wrong. Christianity is not a free-for-all where anything you want counts. But these guys went beyond even the legitimate restrictions and began adding rules of their own that the Bible said nothing about. And they began to tell people, if you really want to get close to God, this is how you do it. And you can tell from the strong language. And one of the translations said, this is the doctrine of demons. The doctrine of demons. I mean, he's using very strong language to say here that he hates this kind of teaching. That this is one of the most offensive and grievous kinds of errors that could be taught in the church. Do you remember that Paul had left his spiritual protege, Timothy, behind in the city of Ephesus because false teachers had moved into the church and created all kinds of chaos and damage in the faith of the people? And whenever, you got to understand this, the seeds of a bad idea can poison people's minds and completely change the course of their lives. Uh, I've seen this play out again and again where just an idea pops into someone's mind and it begins to grow into a tree of error. Like their whole lives are thrown away because someone told them something that isn't true but sounded true and it steered them right over the cliff. And that's what happened in Ephesus. And so Paul has left Timothy behind to clean up the mess and to rebuild the strength of the church in the aftermath of this false teaching. And now finally in this text, we get a glimpse at some of the wrong teaching that was being given in the church in Ephesus. And chief among them is this teaching that the pathway to spiritual growth is through bondage. That the way to get closer to God is to get further and further and further away from your flesh and from the world. And what Paul is saying is that any teaching that robs God's people of their legitimate freedom is a deep, deep offense to Christ. In the letter to the Galatian church, here's what he wrote. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And he was addressing the Galatian church in which the exact same problem was happening. As if the rules of Christ were not enough, these guys were adding book upon book of additional rules that were oppressing the spirits of the people and stealing their joy in knowing Christ. Let me just take an aside here and say anything that steals people's freedom and joy destroys life as God intended. And I think Jesus and Paul reserved some of their harshest criticism for teaching that bound people in the very places where Jesus Christ had died to set them free. To give you an example of the kinds of prohibitions they were coming up with, they were telling people not to, not to marry at all. They're saying marriage is too exclusive. Don't marry. It's better to remain single and celibate for the rest of your life. Now, a few religious movements have tried that. Lots of religions ban foods of all kinds, okay? I mean, that's not an unusual thing. But uh, they were also doing something very unusual in the religious landscape, and they were forbidding marriage. Now, in England and later on in the Americas, the Shakers tried that. 
Do you remember this? You guys study the Shaker movement in U.S. history. And they said, we're not going to get married. Everybody's equal. We're all in, in communal living. We're going to buy one big house. And they did this after people had already been married. And they ripped apart husbands and wives, parents from their children, said from now on, everybody's all one common family. And that lasted a little while. And then it died out. And I watched the documentary on the Shaker movement. They said, alas, the zeal faded quickly after two generations. Duh. When you tell people that the way to spiritual growth is asceticism, which is really a philosophy or religious idea that says that the way to spiritual growth is to suffer in the flesh. When you give that idea to people, I think you rob them of the full joy of what it is to know the Savior and the Creator. Now, let me just put some parentheses up here because some of you are getting carried away with yourselves already, and I haven't said anything. But I'm not talking about... Runaway freedom, illegitimate freedom, this idea that I can do whatever I want and no one can make me feel bad about it, that is not at all the kind of freedom we're talking about. But there are such legitimate freedoms that Jesus died to guarantee for us, and anyone who would try to take that away from us is creating an offense to the cross of Christ because the path to spiritual growth is not in spite of or against the flesh, But the truth is, we can actually know Christ in the flesh, not in spite of it. Paul is basically giving a teaching in these verses, which many have called the discipline of celebration. I read a book by Richard Foster called The Celebration of Discipline. That's not what I'm talking about, although we should celebrate the idea of discipline. I'm talking about applying rigorous intention to the act, the practice of celebrating life. And I'm not just talking about celebrating life in the heart, in the abstract, but in the small, tangible, material blessings that can be experienced in flesh and blood, which is, in fact, what Paul is talking about here. The idea of intimacy and affection in a marriage relationship, the idea of foods that God created not only with nutritional value, but with visual pleasure, with taste, with smell, with texture, all of it is intended to be received as part of the way that God is expressing his love to us. As Ben Franklin famously observed, you guys know this quote? Ben Franklin said that beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. I haven't tasted beer in a long time now. It's I'm, I, like I, many of you know, I, I haven't tasted alcohol in like 346 days, but who's counting? But I remember the joy of the taste of a cold beer on a hot day. And I'm not sure where he was coming from, but something about what Franklin says rings true to me. That in some of the things that we can only experience in the flesh, we can actually experience the deep, deep abiding love and kindness and generosity of God. Now, you've got to get this right. I'm going to unpack what the discipline of celebration is because if you get it wrong, it's an open invitation to chaos and addiction and bondage and slavery. The last thing I want to do is talk about freedom in a way that puts you in slavery, okay? But it's possible to do that. So please pay attention as I unpack for you what the discipline of celebration is all about. And it's such a rich topic, I think we could say so much more on it. I've decided to say two main things, okay? And the first is that the the discipline of celebration 
is about savoring all of God's gifts. That word savoring is not a really common word in the English language today. We don't really talk about savoring things. But look at what, what Paul says. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. I think most of us were raised well enough that if someone gives you something, what do you say? Thank you, right? You probably said it on the way in, I hope, as somebody from our hospitality team handed you a bulletin, and it's just a piece of paper describing what's going to happen here. But even for such a small gift, we're raised well enough to know when somebody gives you something, you just say out of habit, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think most of us know how to do that, and we even know how to say thank you to God. But can I just point out something I've observed about my own life, and maybe, maybe it's true of your life. There's a lot of entitlement when you're an American. Like the normal things are supposed to be normal because they're supposed to happen to us. Like every day, I'm supposed to wake up and feel good. Oh, I woke up and I feel crummy. Sucks. Oh, why, Lord? Because the entitlement is every day I'm supposed to spring out of bed and go, it's awesome to be me. I feel 100% awesome. Like the Lego song, right? Everything is awesome. That's supposed to be the national anthem of America. That's the way we believe we should feel. So when anything takes away the awesomeness from everything, we get upset. And our upset over every downturn reveals the fact that we believe we're entitled to awesome everything all the time. 24-7, unbroken blessing in all that I survey. That's our American ideal. So that even though we know to say thank you to God, we don't always think to say thank you for the stuff that we should presume upon. I should breathe and air should come in my lungs. I should keep breathing because doggone it, that's my entitlement. I'm not going to thank you just for breathing. It's just breathing. Well, do you realize you're breathing right now just like we sang this morning because it's his breath in our lungs? You don't breathe because you choose to breathe or you're able to breathe. Every breath is God's sustaining grace for us. You could stop breathing before the end of this day. Do you realize this? We think, well, I should have enough food to eat. I should have a warm place in cold weather. I should be free of worry. I should have enough money to pay my bills every month. I should, I should. And So what I'm trying to say is this. I'm not trying to just make you feel okay. I'm trying to show you there is so much we have, but it doesn't always occur to us to say thank you because there's a baseline that we presume upon and we feel entitled to, and it's only when life gives us a blessing beyond what should be presumed upon that we think, oh, that was nice. Every day I have plenty to eat, but this was a particularly delicious meal at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, thank you, God. Thank you for that special treat because my, my whole life is what others in the third world dream of in their fantasies. If you could see their dreams, it's our life every day. What's it like to just eat all the time? To not be afraid of people shooting you? What's it like to live like that? That's our life every day. But for us to actually say thank you takes an extraordinarily good fortune most of the time. And what Paul is saying, when he, if you flash up that verse again, what Paul is saying is, 
Part of the reason we don't have a good grasp on gratitude is that we've narrowed the circle of what qualifies for thanksgiving to too narrow a circle. We think, I should be thankful, but only for this small subset of blessings. But he says, everything which God has given us qualifies for gratitude. You can actually find God and connect with him in even the most mundane, ordinary things that you presume upon every day. And if you don't learn how to do that, you are missing an incredible opportunity for spiritual growth. Now, you guys know, I've I've said this before, I'm a car guy and I drive a 2004 Honda Accord. When I was 18, I would have considered that a life failure. Like, off the charts, if 18-year-old me could talk to 48-year-old me and say, in 30 years, you're going to be driving a 2004 Honda Accord, I'd be like, you have done something very, very future self, you're a loser. But here's the thing, okay? Lately, that old car is showing her age. I don't know why it's a she, but she's showing her age. And you know what? It's getting to the point now where in the mornings when I turn the key, I, I, I thought this was just in the movies or TV shows, but every morning I turn the key and go, oh, yeah, it fired up. And lately the transmission is sticking, and I, when I just put it in reverse, if it doesn't clunk like that, I'm like, oh, So I'm learning now, because there are issues with the car, that something as simple as my car, the stupid thing just, I'm always focused on where I'm going now, I'm actually learning to connect with God in gratitude just for the fact to be going anywhere. And I didn't think I would experience that with my car. And I'm not saying that in a veiled complaint. I'm legitimately telling you, I am experiencing gratitude in places I never thought as an American I would experience. Like, I'm actually happy my car goes somewhere. That's crazy. Here's the thing. I think we are missing out as Americans on so many opportunities to grow spiritually because we have such a high threshold for what makes us happy. I love what G.K. Chesterton wrote. I, I don't know what it is about this picture, but this picture makes me so happy. I, I could have a devotional time just looking at this picture, and I would understand that's, that little girl's expression is how God wants us to feel in our hearts. And G.K. Chesterton wrote these words. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. Parents of little kids, how many of you know that's true? Do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. I think what Chesterton is saying 
is that our God has an ability to delight in the ordinary that most of us have lost. That the ordinary bores us. And we only notice God and life in the extraordinary. But God looks at the ordinary things. And he sees something beautiful. I've always loved this photograph shot in 1918 by Eric Enstrom. I always thought it was a, a painting until I looked closer. I'm like, no, dude, that's a photo. And I looked it up and it's a photograph. You guys have this hanging in your wall by any chance? It's called Grace. And what I love about it is that it depicts simplicity and gratitude so powerfully. When's the last time you were truly thankful for a chunk of bread? That's what I throw away at Panera when I get my salad. They give that little chunk of bread, I just throw it away in the garbage. I don't even think about it. This dude is so thankful for that little piece of bread. He doesn't even have the rest of the Panera meal. he got to pick one, apparently. And he's got a big book and a pair of glasses, and he just looks so grateful for his simple life. And I think, you know, there's something he probably sees that I'm missing in my life of abundance. Throughout this passage, Paul emphasizes the word received a number of times. And what he's saying is, yes, the world is strewn full of things, and among the things in the world, there are lots of things that you have, you own, you take. And as Americans, we have more than our fair share of that, right? Think about how many things you take, you own, you have. But there is a dynamic in the word receiving that has etiquette involved, protocol involved. Let me put it this way. When I give somebody a gift, and I've planned for it, I've thought about what, they, what makes them happy, and I journey to the store, and this store doesn't have it, so I journey to that store, they don't have it. I remember one day on Christmas, I must have been in my mid-20s, my mom gave me a sweater, okay? And I just, she, you know, I'm so used to my mom always gets me a sweater every year, a sweater or a shirt. So I just went, hey, thanks, and I grabbed it, and I took it off. She goes, hold on, hold on. Don't you like it? I'm like, Yeah. So, <laughs> it's nice, okay? She goes, you don't understand. I had in my heart a picture of you with a certain color sweater, and I wanted to see you in it. And I went to every store in the mall, and no one had it. So I went to two other malls, and finally, I found the sweater just for you. And that's what's in that box. And I want you to, and she said this, and at that time, I was too young to really understand. But she said, David, The sweater is nothing. I could buy you a million sweaters with dad's money. (laughs) But the gift is the journey of knowing you and looking for just the right sweater. That's the gift I'm giving you. And as a 20-something, I was like, yeah, okay, thanks. (laughs) But those words, like a fishbone caught in your throat, have stuck in my soul ever since. And when I go out of my way to prepare a gift for someone... No matter how small, no matter what it is, there's a certain etiquette, a certain trans... It's more than just the transferring of commodities. I wouldn't want to give a gift to somebody and they're like, oh, is that for me? Thank you. And then they just run off. Like, that's not why I bought it. I want for there to be some lingering, a connection. I want to have a moment with you because the gift is a... a, It's really a tool for you and I to share a moment. If not, 
I'll just give you cash. Go buy yourself something. This is just, you know, like, this is somehow vicarious shopping is all it is then. Here, you buy something with my money. It's so cold. But a gift, when it's properly received, binds the receiver to the giver in a lingering moment that has great power. And that's what always is in the heart of the giver. It's not always in the heart of the receiver. But it's always in the heart of the giver. In the winter months, I got to tell you, I don't really like our dogs that much. And I don't really like cold weather that much. But I know that my wife hates the cold. And so in the winter months, unlike the warm weather months, I try to go out of my way to wake up early, no matter how little sleep I've gotten, so I could be the one to walk the dogs in the morning. And almost every morning, she acknowledges that I thought that way. She goes, thank you for getting up early, as if it's her appointed job. I don't know why it should fall to her, but she assumes that duty every day. But when I do it, that builds our relationship because I intended very intentionally to bless her for a specific reason. And when she realizes it and receives it as such, it binds our hearts together. Do you see that? It binds us together. And I think there's something about the way that we take things or have things that gets in the way of savoring what God gives us. The word savor has built into it the idea of lingering slowness, doesn't it? If you open a bag of Doritos and you just go, that was a bag of Doritos, you've consumed it, but you haven't savored it. Savoring a Dorito is to say, you come here, you delicious triangle. You grab it, and you, first the, the bouquet. Then you poke it, kind of bend it, make sure that it's got a good firmness, a crisp, and then you... And you just let that saliva wash over the cheese and run down your throat. And it just fills your mouth with nacho-ness. Do you know what I'm saying? And then you crunch, you, you sense the corn, vaguely like the smell of your dog's feet, you know, like that. And you just swallow, and you go, gosh, this is a good chip. It's a good chip. And if you only got three Doritos and you were hungry, I guarantee you, you would savor each one. I think the way that we scarf things down, the way that we just chug and chow and slurp and guzzle, we can't savor a thing. And maybe that's for the best because everyone who comes from overseas says American food tastes disgusting. It's so chemically and unnatural and disease tasting. They're like, no wonder you eat so fast that we don't have to ever taste any of this grotesque food that you guys tried to eat around here. If you come to my country, food tastes like food. We taste sugar, not as part of it, you know, not aspartame, not nutrisweet. We actually taste cane sugar. We taste garlic and vegetables from the ground and meat without chemicals. That's what food tastes like, people. Do you get what I'm saying? Is that we in America are losing the capacity to savor anything because we just Look, I go to Spain, and I get a little cortada. It's a tiny little, it looks like an American girl doll cup. And I'm like, I ordered a coffee. And they're like, yeah, that's your coffee. But I'm not a baby. Yeah, but that's your coffee. And yet, you can sip that thing for like 30 minutes, and it tastes good every sip. Then you come to America, and you get what tastes like tea made out of cigarette butts, 
and they give you in 7-Eleven a 100-ounce, super big gulp insulated chug mug. Have you seen this? It comes out of the holidays. It's the perfect picture of what we are. And it's like, how do you savor anything when this is the way we consume? So I'm asking you, slow down, wake up, smell the roses. Here's another way to think about it. If I told you tomorrow, you will die. What would you notice on this last day of your life? How many of you would try to make your work deadlines, get your work finished in time? If, you, if you're told for certainty you're dying tomorrow, how many of you would be like, but I have to get this report in by tomorrow for work? <laughs> if you say, yeah, I would, you've you got to come see me. We've got to help you before you, it's too late. That's, that's not virtuous. That's sick beyond recognition. I'll tell you what I'd notice. I would notice every little ordinary thing which I've walked past in a rush. I would notice the way each of my kids feels different against my body when I hug them. They fit differently. I would notice and remember the smell of my wife's scalp each time I kiss her forehead. I smell her hair. That smell is so familiar to me, but I don't notice it. I don't linger on it. But I think those are the kinds of things I'd notice. I would notice the way my house creaks in the middle of the night. I would notice that the Japanese maple in my backyard has grown at least four feet since we moved in. I would just open the windows, even in winter, and feel air, wind, breeze, anything. What I'd notice on the last day of my life is this beautiful world we live in. The treasured moments of ordinary things. That's what I'd notice. Forget work. Work is important, but it's not supremely important. And it certainly is not what life is made for. We need to stop speed reading to our children at night. We need to stop speed bathing them as if they're dishes. <laughs> Savor every precious second of their childhood which is fleeting. I think we also need to just cut down if we're going to savor. I mean, the child with one meager, humble toy will treasure that one toy far more than our children with rooms full of toys, most of which they never even touch. I have good-willed toys that are in pristine condition because my children had too many other things to distract them And we are giving away toys that were never played with. Try an experiment. Whatever it is you enjoy, try an experiment in the remainder of this year. Cut down on frequency and quantity and variety and see if it doesn't naturally enhance your enjoyment and ability to savor it. My kids love our annual vacation because it is our one annual vacation. They are so desperate for that to be fun that even if it was the worst trip in the world, they'd be like, that was awesome. They have to tell themselves that because we are only going to get the one. (laughs) And if this blows, that's it. (laughs) If we blow it, you don't get another vacation. And I think as a result, our kids are hardwired to draw every ounce of enjoyment out of every second of that trip. 
Jeannie and I go out to eat maybe twice a year at restaurants. So for us, it's really not about the food. We're not restaurant critics for the Chicago Tribune, after all. I mean, you know, we do notice the food, but because it's so rare, we're freaking out the whole time. We're out like, is this really happening? You and me at a nice restaurant, just the two of us. And because of the infrequency, because of the rareness, we treasure it. It's just a basic truth of the world that quantity and quality work against each other when it comes to savoring. So if you want to learn to savor every small gift God gives, wow, you've got to cut down and slow down and learn to pause and look around you. Now that's the long setup for the second point, which will be the short punchline to the joke. And that is that we have to also find God in everything that we're savoring. Look, if I were a Buddhist or a psychologist giving a seminar on mindfulness, are you aware of the mindfulness movement? If I were just giving a mindfulness seminar, I could stop the talk right here and it would be great. You'd learn how to draw more enjoyment out of life, out of life's simple pleasures. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're saying pause to savor every good gift God gave because the point is he wants to bind us to him through every small experience of receiving a gift. That's why he said, if we receive it with thanksgiving as coming from the hand of God, and we, in that process, acknowledge him through thanksgiving by prayer and the word of God. Word of God here likely doesn't mean scripture. It just means the truth of God and who he is, all that he stands for. If we don't just see good things, but we see God himself in it, then even the enjoyment of life's physical, material, fleshly pleasures can produce spiritual growth. If I could put it more simply, I think what Paul is saying is there's a big difference between, ooh, this is yummy, and thank you, God, for this. Do you understand the difference between, oh, this is yummy, and thank you, God? So often, we place all our focus on the gifts that we're given, and we sort of brush right past the giver. I love this, I love that, I want this, I want that. But the reason for all the gifts is for us to awaken to this idea that there is a great gift giver who loves us. And even in the smallest things, if we acknowledge that he is giving this to us as a gift, we can start to grow spiritually, not in spite of our flesh, but in fact because of it. And when we learn to look for God in every small gift we're savoring in this earthly life, we'll start to really grow, even in the spiritual realm. I think part of the reason we grow bored of God is because we've stopped looking for him in the 10,000 places where he dances in our lives. He is everywhere, but we only look for him in two or three places of our choosing. I've had people say to me, God's not good because I've been waiting for X, Y, or Z for years and he never gave it to me. God's not good. I don't know. You look like you haven't missed that many meals. You look pretty well rested. You ain't naked, that's for sure. Thank God. You drove here somehow. You breathe. Your bones aren't broken. We're not at war in any way that means anything to you. And yet, because you've decided I will only look for God in these two places and judge his goodness on that basis, our conclusion is God is not good. 
He's not powerful. He's not out there. He doesn't care about me. What an opportunity we're missing to see God in the 10,000 little ways that he is showing himself to us every single day. Look at this great quote by G.K. Chesterton. You could tell I was on a Chesterton groove this week. Look what he says. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and pantomime. He's old. (laughs) And grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Isn't that beautiful? It always occurs to me to pray for food. Even that's the most perfunctory prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful meal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now I won't get indigestion. That's sort of the superstitious karma that we, right? Now I won't get indigestion. But has it occurred to us, simply to, to, even before we go to work, before we see a movie, before we play catch with our sons or daughters, to just say, God, I thank you for this. I just pause and I say grace like I do before food. Because everything in my life is a gift from you. And if I see you in it, then I will grow close to you because of this flesh and not just in spite of it. In about 12 days, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And uh, at Christmas, we acknowledge the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you know anything about Latin, that word means the infleshing of God. We celebrate that God became flesh like us. And when he did that, he did something profoundly important. What he said was, flesh is not weak and broken and corrupt inherently, but it can be redeemed. We typically associate the word flesh with weakness and sin and frailty But when Jesus became flesh, what he said was flesh can become powerful and holy and spiritual. Flesh can become a pathway to God. Can you imagine what we may be missing if we fail to learn this lesson? Especially as Americans, how much God is reaching after us through our flesh and not simply in spite of it. And in every little thing, we can experience him. We can look for him and find him, and we can grow. I wonder if you adopt this mindset, even as you walk out of this place today, how many places you will notice God is alive and at work in your life. He's present with you. Today, it's almost 60 degrees, and it's mid-December. That scares me. It's like the second coming is near. I mean, that's not normal for Chicago. Would you agree? And I want to encourage you, don't just go from here to your car and go, oh, what a nice day, what a nice day. Don't chat about it. Stand there for just one second and just feel alive. Just feel it. Smell the air. Feel the breeze on your skin. 
And just for a moment, <laughs> it's going to look really weird out there, like 150 people just... <laughs> but that'd be okay with me. I want to encourage you, put this into practice today. Slow everything down. Cut everything down. And take a minute to find your creator and your savior in the most ordinary places. Why don't we bow and let's pray together. You know, we do an awful lot of struggling in our flesh, don't we? We struggle against lust, against an addiction to comfort, against substance addiction. This flesh and bone body of ours has been host to many of our weaknesses and our struggles. But Jesus also reminded us that it's in this flesh and blood, this body, that we can lay hold of God and touch him. That so many of the ways he wanted to show himself to us, we will experience in this flesh. Maybe one of the keys to spiritual recovery for many of us is not to just do battle in the flesh, but to chase God in the flesh. To learn this practice of savoring even the small good things in life. It is a blessing to be grateful just because your car starts. And today, when you get in that car and it turns over, just pause and say, wow, thank you for the reliability of this experience. So I want to give us a moment just to pause in quiet And let's be in a listening, reflective posture and see if the Lord's Spirit will just breathe something into your heart right now that you need to hear from Him. Let's just have a moment of quiet as we listen for Him. Is the Lord telling you that you need to slow down just a little bit? I don't know what demons are chasing you. I don't know what you think you have to prove in this world, but Can I challenge some of you that while you're running so hard in the pursuit of your goals, which you think are so defining of who you are, you may be missing out on just the joy of being alive. How attractive is eternal life to the person who doesn't even have this life? Are you alive, really, right now? Or are you just here? doesn't have to be that way. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you will continue pounding against the gate until you break through. Lord, we know there are some in this room who are still far from you. And no matter how hard, how persistently you've knocked on that door, it remains closed. But one day, you will break through and there will be a dawning. One day, you will win. And we pray that our hearts would be open to you. That we won't have to waste the short time on this earth. We will be truly alive. And in the most ordinary of places, we would find you and we'll be bound to you 
and we would grow in you. So Jesus, come and redeem this weak flesh and make it holy, make it powerful, make it the means by which we will come close to God. Open the eyes of our heart, even at this very moment, and help us to savor the many, many good gifts you've given us in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.